Bobob listeners, welcome to a special in-between series episode where it's only myself this time, only one third of the uh, usual triumphant triumvirate of Lorcan, Tom and Michael. It's unfortunately only Lorcan for you this time if you're a Michael fan or a Tom fan. One of the things we've always wanted to do with this show is obviously we're having jokes and laughs about some of the worst films that have ever come from the UK. But one of the things we also like to do, if you're a regular listener, know at the end we say how incredibly difficult it is to even make any kind of film and that we always make sure we're the butt of the joke ultimately. And one of the things that we wanted to talk about in this podcast is the UK film industry itself and people's experiences within it. And so this will be the first of hopefully more episodes in the future. And I've brought with me a very qualified person to talk about it. She is a comedian, a writer, an actor and a director. She's made several short films that we'll talk about in this episode and We'll be making some features in the near future. I've interviewed her once before. We'll have a brief chat about that, maybe. It's the wonderful Nat Lutzima. Nat, thank you so much for doing this with us today. You're welcome. I mean, obviously, I was busy, um, as we all are. <laughs> it's just nice to have some human contact. Yeah, so I interviewed you once before for a podcast I did briefly, and it was the Edinburgh Fringe, and I can't remember what year it was, but I think it might have been the last year that you've done a show there, or at least a full show, it was the Here She Be year? Yeah, 2014, I think. And I made a short film, and it was quite successful. And I was like, see ya, suckers. I'm off to make movies. Which was premature. <laughs> <laughs> you've written a couple of books since then, and you've also made some short films. What we're hoping to understand, really, is the difficulty of making films, the processes, and how you feel you've developed your, your own personal story as we go along. So at what point did you start to actively pursue getting involved in the film industry in films shorts or features do you know it's terrible because my origin story for filmmaking is awful if i'm being honest so i was i was a stand-up comedian for seven years and so it was 2013 near the end of 2013 and i was just really depressed there's something about stand-up where if you're not enjoying it then traveling around all by yourself and gigging and doing the same jokes about yourself but you hate yourself just is an awful awful circuit to be stuck on and my friend ben malaby said why don't you write a short film and i'll direct it he literally said the words it'll get you out of town for the weekend and i thought that would be good good to get away from my horrible horrible life and so we went down to cornwall i wrote a short film in a, in a week and um, batted backwards and forwards with Ben a bit. I think it was the third draft we took down to Cornwall and we shot it. And at the same time, I was shooting Live at the Electric for BBC Four. I had to like back to back that shooting, which I thought would be glamorous. And then the actuality was me driving around Cornwall, completely losing my sat-nav and getting two hours sleep. And so we made that film. It was called Island Queen. It was based on a true story in Iceland of a sperm bank having to close because the gene pool was so shallow that people were getting some relatives product. We made it and we sent it out to, I remember sending it out to my agent at the time who said, it's just not very good. And I was like, oh, oh, crushing, never mind. And we sent it out to some other people who were like, I just don't like it. And then it it got into a few little film festivals. And then suddenly bigger film festivals were getting in touch and saying, oh, we really like it. Can we take it? And we were like, well, we can't pay to enter it. So yes, but for free. And they were like, yeah, fine. And, And this just all felt so very easy. And then like 10 months later, it was nominated for a BAFTA. And I was like, well... Well, film's easy compared to stupid, stupid stand-up. I'm going to start making films. And then I started making films, and I was like, oh, no, like all creative endeavours, it is also very hard. But I enjoy it more than stand-up. And it's definitely less lonely. I love working with 
a team and I always have a team around me no matter what role I'm doing on a film and then since then I think I've made four or five more shorts and then I've written six features and they're sort of all in a queue now getting ready to get get out and get made Covid permitting. As you say, Island Queen was BAFTA nominated for a Best Short. Is that something that the produ- the people behind the film have to actively pursue? And is that something that you've pursued with your subsequent short films to try and get them BAFTA nominated? No. I think now I'm a judge at the short film BAFTAs sometimes. And so I realise like your odds of getting nominated are so, so very slim. And we never made that first one to be BAFTA nominated. It literally never occurred to me. I mean, as much as anything, not to be cynical, like the sort of films that get awards nominated, shorts, features, anything, they tend to like pack a real sort of emotional punch and to be about issues that are undeniably important. And our film was a comedy about spunk. I mean, like it had heart and it was, I like to say, well-written, but it was about spunk. You don't write that and make that and think that that's going to end up being garlanded with anything. So it was a nice surprise. Did you attend the BAFTAs yourself? Yeah, we did. We did. Because it's a category I imagine you get played off within 10 seconds. You do get played off within 10 seconds. And I misread my um, seat number. So I um, went in and I was like, oh, I'm down near the front. That's nice of them. Sat down and I could see Leonardo DiCaprio was near me. And I could see Angelina Jolie and Emma Thompson. And I met eyes, I caught eyes with somebody who just looked at me a bit like, I think you're in the wrong place. And I checked my ticket again. And I was like, oh, excuse me, everyone up. I'm, I'm going to the back. Oh, it's AA. Oh, see, right. And I texted my mum and she was like, oh, will you be on camera? And I said, I'm almost certain I won't be because the camera is on a track running behind our row of chairs. And so the camera is passing above our heads. She's like, oh, put your hand up. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm going to put my hand up. <laughs> That feels like it would be unprofessional, doesn't it, mother? Um, but yeah, it was nice. It was, uh, you you definitely feel like you're at the kids' table. So it's nice to be there, but you don't feel like you're part of the the gang. And I've been back a couple of times, like, but not nominated. And like, yeah, you definitely think, oh, I'd like to be, I'd like to be in a nominated feature. That feels like you would really feel like you belonged. She says in a spoiled brat sort of way, because right now it would just be nice to leave the bloody house. Has a BAFTA nomination on the CV helped you in any way, do you think, in getting further work after that? Yeah, almost certainly. Almost certainly. I I remember talking to um, Tim Key after he got nominated for the Perrier and I was like, oh, you know, how is it? And he was like, I think it's just the sort of thing that's going to always be a good thing and helpful. And I was like, yeah, no, I totally get that. And I think more than anything in my career, it's just such a recognisable word that like, I'm sure it, it opens doors that I don't, that I am not even aware could be closed to me. You know what I mean? And that's real privilege because I think you're only aware of how difficult certain things are when doors get shut in your face. And I definitely have doors shut in my face, but there are also some that I just sort of toddle on through. So that first film, first short, you wrote and starred in it. All mm-hmm. the subsequent ones we're going to talk about, you've directed in the them was the intention always to direct your own writing no um so the in fact the film afterwards was called three women wait for death and that one i again wrote and starred in 
And then the day after that one wrapped, and that was quite exhausting because we shot right near my house and my boyfriend at the time was the producer. So there was a lot of like me driving vans around and then hopping on set and going into makeup. Um, And then straight after that, I had a tiny role in Florence Foster Jenkins. And I think between watching the director, Isabel Sieb of Three Women Wait for Death, and then hopping on set and watching um, Stephen Frears direct. And like, and between the two of them, I was just like, I really want to be doing that bit. And which I'd not really felt before because previously I'd acted in TV and TV directing. I just it just looked different to me from my position as an actor at the time, whereas with film directing, it just felt more like something I wanted to do. If that's not rude to TV directing, I realise now as I'm saying it. Yeah, I've got a follow up question actually on that later on. But um, what lessons did you take from watching someone direct you about your own writing and directing you as an actor. And then you later did a war paint, a short film that was written by Yasmin Akram, wasn't it? Yes, Yasmin Akram, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And did you bring those experiences into account when you were directing her with her own writing? Hugely, yeah. I mean, really, the the writing and then acting in something is actually quite an uncomfortable combination because you write the script, you create a world, you really inhabit it and then you give it to a director and then when you next get on set, you're like, oh, is this what my living room looks like? Because I imagined it, oh, okay. yeah, no, okay, yeah, yeah. But it's weird because the world in your head, you're suddenly confronted with the fact that someone has built a different world, which of course, because you have different brains. And so actually writing and directing... When I started writing and directing and not acting in anything, that was when that really had a great impact on my scripts. Um, As much as anything, it made me write a lot less dialogue because I realised how often on set you would just like fling lines aside because you're like, don't need them. It's fine. You can do that with a look unless it's funny and it's pushing the story forward then it's not working hard enough and it has to go. And then you get into the edit and you slice a load more stuff out. So I'm now much more economical with my writing. And also in the in the prose, when you're setting up scenes, I used to be quite prescriptive about like where characters were moving and things that they were doing. And now I realise as a director, I do not wish to read that because you're not giving me you're not giving me orders. You're just you're just building a world and then I as the director I'm gonna make my characters move through it so now my stage stage directions always sounds wrong in a screenplay but they are basically stage directions they're now much more loose I think you can always tell writers who have directed because I think we all write a little bit more kindly to whoever's going to direct and I have two feature films right now that are going to be directed by other people and I think I'm going to write a third in the coming months and I think they will really benefit from the fact I've directed and I'm now writing it as the writer, would you be present on those sets? I've always never been entirely sure what role a writer will have on the set. I mean, do they bring them in to punch up dialogue? Does the director ask them almost as like a conciliary? Are they just... Ign- I remember there was a line in the West Wing where uh, Josh is has nothing to do. And he says, I'm like a writer on a film set. And given that that's Aaron Sorkin, he probably knows all the yeah, experiences yeah, yeah. of a writer yeah. on a film set. I think there's famous experiences of like writers being shut out of their own film sets and just like loitering at the gates with like a load of fans wanting to see what's going on. I I don't know because I've not had any of my scripts shot by another director yet. Um, but I imagine it comes down to if it's like a really big deal studio thing and you've been strong armed out of it, which none of those are. They're all quite indie. And also your relationship with your director. And in both cases, I 
currently anyway, have really good relationships with the directors. So I'd probably, I'd hope to be on set. I'd be happy to punch up anything, but I'd assume they didn't need me because, you know, they're great at what they do. But also it's always nice to watch other directors work because now I don't really act very much. Uh, I don't get a chance to watch other directors working. On my personal level, I've got certain goals in life I want to do. I want to, and some of them I've achieved. You know, I've done a show at Edinburgh. I've written a book. I've written a play. I haven't put it on yet. I want to do an album's worth of music. And one of the goals I've always had, I mean, the big ultimate dream is to do a feature film, but that's so incredibly difficult, as we are aware, and make sure that we point out in Boob. But I think, like, a a semi-realistic goal would be at least to make a short film in my life. But the thing that always baffles me with the short film is how they can even get the financing in the first place, especially privately, because it doesn't seem to be something that the investor can really get a return on their investment, at least financially. So what is the world of of short film financing, essentially? Is it mostly grants and, and the like? Yeah, it's a good question. It's um because the thing is with short films as well there is definitely a, a level of low budget which once you sink beneath you have to be so so very careful that, that that idea is even worth making because your production values will be a bit compromised. I definitely have a follow up to that one later. Yeah, on. yeah, go on. Um but um like Island Queen cost 800 pounds to make and we are all still receiving um little bits of money off it. <laughs> So, yeah, Island Queen was £800 and that was a private investor. It was a businessman who just put his money in, never thought to see it again and was quite surprised to get an invite to the BAFTAs and get his money back, I think. (laughs) Um, And then that Island Queen got bought by Virgin Atlantic and it played on aeroplanes for quite a long time. So that actually made a little bit of money back. But then the film afterwards was there was a scheme called Funny Girls that Creative England and Big Talk ran. And that was to like support like five female directors in with comedy films. So that was how that one was funded. The next one was funded by, again, it was another female scheme. It was Shakespeare's sister. If you can write a short film inspired by Shakespeare. And so that was funded by um, the Arts Council and Film London. I, was, I, I almost misheard that as the band Shakespeare's sister or pay for it. I, I always <laughs> saw it like that as well. Yes. Yeah. Gone but not forgotten, Shakespeare's sister. I think they, I think they recently reunited, actually. Did they? Yeah. Well, I'll be Googling recently. that. Recently, yeah. Good on them. Mm. Do you know what? They've been mainly grants and things, but the last one I did, Genera Films, they're a film company that have a film fund and they gave us about five grand, I think, for that. Well, it's great because some people do chuck like loads of their own money behind it. Like there, there are there are people chucking five figures at short films, which just having got to the BAFTAs with an eight hundred pound film, I just don't think that lots of money is always the is always the route because I don't know. There's there's some sort of alchemy that happens on set where like you can you can get on set with an amazing script sometimes and you do not bring an amazing film out of it you can take a mediocre script on set and sometimes come out with something magical and yeah so i don't know i don't think the answer is always to like sink all your savings for like 10 years into one short film mm. i'm i'm not sure that's where creativity lies but you're right it's like grants and things and like filmmakers or oh, we often like pass links around between each other because yeah. sometimes they're so niche as well i was going to say how can you discover them how do you, are there like magazines or 
websites or something twitter mainly if you'd yeah. like follow the right people on twitter like there's always lots of people like rachel Pryor, formerly of big talk um now she's set up her own company with naira park she's always quite good i think at like retweeting opportunities that she sees um creative england film london film four like there's there's loads and loads i think the bbc bbc uh yeah writer's room yes they're always like showing opportunities that come up and also like if you just befriend a load of film directors and film writers on Twitter. Like, it, it sort of generally, you, you know, it'll it'll come your way. Because mm. I'm always sending friends links to things that I'm like, I haven't got anything, but maybe you do. And they do the same with me. So to follow on, you were saying the money that you made, the little bit of money you made from Ireland Queen on, on Virgin yeah. Flights, did you say? Because uh, Three Women Wait for Death is available on Amazon Prime if people want to see search that one yes. out. Um, how did that deal happen? Are Amazon people that actively are looking for short films, or is it just a give it to us and we'll put it on there? Or no, I think they, uh, I think they do a lot of, of 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 companies like that do, and they look for award winners. So we won. Uh, there's a film festival called Encounters in Bristol, and we won best uh, live action short there. And that's when I think the offer came in. Producing an actual short film, what happens, what are you doing as a director during pre-production, production and post-production? And how do you approach each stage? As a writer-director, it sort of never, ever stops. I think that's why I'm quite glad I've got a few features where I'm just the writer and I can then hand it to the director. And obviously I'm always available for them, but as the director, even if you don't write the script, I remember with Warpaint, me and Yasmin were in constant, and Dermot, our producer, were in constant communication about the script. And then when you go into pre-production, that is really full-on. That is looking at locations, finding locations, choosing them, casting actors. Like, it's an amazing grounding really making a short film if you have a bit of budget then you are basically recreating a feature film on a tiny micro level so when you do step into features even if you might not have been in like i don't know a massive sound suite before you know what this sound process is and you know what this post process is and um it it really helps that our producer had worked for quite a long time in post-production at warner brothers so he was familiar with doing post-production on like wonder woman and, and fantastic beasts and things like that so he's fully aware of what you do when you've got all the bells and whistles so therefore what we need to do on a smaller smaller scale so by the time you go into the shoot you're already a bit knackered and then the shoot is I mean I think the longest shoot I've done it's only five days but like you just and I imagine once you get into a feature and it's like you're you're shooting for weeks you just have to pace yourself a bit better because as it is we would be wrapping late up early wrapping late up early constantly my sleep wasn't good because I'm always thinking about the shots the next day and I never really relax until mid-afternoon if we're hitting our number of pages for the day and we've got all the setups that I want because first thing in the morning I just feel like oh, we might not get everything we need which is so unhelpful I need to get in a better mindset than that otherwise a five-week shoot will kill me and in each of them are you commuting home I remember when I saw um, a cock and bull story um, really enjoyed just seeing the behind the scenes element to it and they're all living in the same hotel so like the break yeah. is them all working in the hotel and chatting about the next day was that has that been the situation yeah that's or what we you... did every time yeah we always just like bunk up together wherever wherever we can it's no surprise I think whenever I hear about like actors having affairs on set it's just like of course because yeah. you just get so like engrossed in the project you're on and like there's no world outside it and like I'm sure post-covid this is going to be more and more of a thing. Like, I'm pretty sure the features I'm working on now, you're just going to have to quarantine with cast and crew, and then you just 
live together somewhere. And that's you for like five, six weeks. When you submit a script for production, how is that budgeted? I've heard that like they'll go through it page by page and they'll say that page is going to cost you this much. Do they have that yeah. level of knowledge through experience? And do you therefore write with a budget in mind beforehand? Or is it like the budget is almost the re-editor? It's the budget is the next draft or something like that. Well, yeah, it's a funny one that like I probably always have budget slightly at the back of my mind because for so long I would be pitching features at like the sub half a million mark. And now I'm in a, several millions when I'm writing, but it's still not very much for a feature film. So I think Stephen Fry was once saying like, what's the fewest words that would cost the most money? And he came up with the fleet's meat because <laughs> either spaceships or actual ships and either way jesus christ um but i think experience again this is amazing with short films experience does teach you that you might write something in that's just like oh she pulls up in her car and runs into the house and it's like experience tells you now that if you've got a tiny tiny budget that's a car you have to ensure that's a an actor you have to ensure on the car and like could you not just have them walking away from the car or do you need the car and like and I think when you when you have a budget in mind a little bit when you're writing I find it helps because I think creativity flourishes with um with limits but now I don't think about it so much but but what I do is I write a script once we're all happy with it in the development process a production manager will look at it and they can go through it um uh, yeah, as you say, page by page, scene by scene, they break pages down into eighths and then like an eighth of a page will take this long and they find various things that like, you know, that they can cost up and budget up and people are often really expensive and a bit of a logistical nightmare. So when you're reading a script, because I often read other people's scripts for like judging awards or things or, or whatever, or just for friends. And whenever there's like a crowd of people head towards you, like, do you desperately need this crowd of people mm. <laughs> because like it's just the wrangling of them feeding them finding them clothing them putting makeup on them how skilled were you when you were starting this on the technical front knowledge about cinematography editing you know the bits and bobs and has that changed with experience and how much technical knowledge do you think a director should have you know do you need to be like a steven soderbergh who can, or james cameron who can do everyone's job or are you just willing to just say, I need this, can this be done? Yeah, I, I knew nothing. I didn't go to film school. I'm still paying off university debt, so film school was never an option. So for a little while, I did feel insecure about my knowledge of lenses and lighting and cinematography and, like, every technical aspect of it. And so I basically put myself through film school. YouTube books, books on editing, books on lighting like I would go to talks I'm a member of BAFTA crew and so in in the pre-COVID days you could go to talks by cinematographers gaffers um, sound designers and I would go to all those talks and generally be surrounded by people who were directly involved in that in that craft but I just wanted to learn all of it but I do remember being on the set of Florence Foster Jenkins and, and Stephen Fritz saying to his cinematographer, what am I looking at here? And he just gestured like top of head to mid shoulders or here. And then he widened his hands and his cinematographer was like, nah, second one. And Fritz was like, fine, fine, fine. And I thought, yeah, yeah, you don't, I mean, I'm not a DP. I don't have to like do a DP's job. I, I can tell the DP you know, what I want, how I want it to feel, how I... And, you know, it is it is better the more I work closely with cinematographers, the more I learn from them. And it is good to have lighting in mind, sometimes even when I'm writing the script, because I know that certain lighting can evoke a certain mood and so we can play with that on set. But 
I think the more I learn, the more I know I don't know. So it means I'm never prescriptive. I think that's it. The more experienced I get, the less I write my scripts in such a way that I'm like, it must be literally exactly like this because that precludes the possibility that someone's going to come up with a much better idea than me, which they almost certainly will. And have those experiences coupled with that you've come from a world of stand-up, which is so your your own thing, has that maybe mm. made you change your opinion on the auteur notion and the and the idea of the singular vision behind a film? Or do you still think that when you look at that film, you're like, this is this is my film. This is a Natlet Seema film. No, no, I don't think I've ever seen that because like I because I remember finding stand up so lonely. And then when I was in a couple of sketch groups, um, Super Clump and Jigsaw, just loving the fact that like I now had all these collaborators to work with. And so now, yeah, now working on a film set with so many amazing people like film crews are incredible. They're like ants. They move into a place that just looks completely bare and deserted. And before lunchtime, you have a whole world built. Like, it's incredible. So, no, I think what the director does is we are in charge of the tone. We keep an eye on the tone and we make sure that it stays consistent or it stays how we want it to. And everything else is just being like the one that people ask questions of. And, you know, it's just a constant thing. If this teacup or that teacup this colour or that colour, this or that, this or that, and you have to just have such a vision clear in your mind. But then that's, I think that's being a stand-up, because as a stand-up, you dictate the tone. And I think seven years of stand-up might have seemed like a weird grounding for a film director, but it means that I'm completely confident in what I'm saying and doing, because as a stand-up, you wear all the consequences if you fuck it up. Very good at pitching and public speaking, so Q&As are not a problem. And dialogue. It means I'm very good at dialogue, I think, because that's so much a part of what you do on stage, especially in sketch as well. That was one thing, because I rewatched Island Queen, and then I, I also watched Warpaint, Ozu and Black Current, and Dream and Wait for Death. Although I did watch them in reverse order, weirdly. I started with Ozu, then Warpaint, then Three Women, and then... Uh, uh, well, I remembered Island Queen from before. But what I did see is a great improvement in the visuals, in the style of the film, uh, through the use of lighting and, and mood. There's some, there's a fantastic use of uh, light up jeans, uh, light up trainers in uh, war paints. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Like a, an establishment and then a payoff later on. I love that there's an establishing shot you make of a, of a railway station and the use of the lens flares and the light coming from the underground. Uh, passageway and it was very very started oh thank you it kind of reminded me of the opening of attack the block and how they were able to turn that yeah, council yeah, yeah, estate yeah. into those sort of things um yeah and then with ozu and black current you do a fantastic use of, of common knowledge mobile phone technology for for and that's a post-production graphic as well um yeah are those improvements things that you feel like you've improved as a director or you've taken more emphasis onto the visual stylings or is it an increase well is it an increase in the budget is it a better experienced crew is it a combination of those factors well yeah it is a combination of those things because i was i yeah i was gonna say that like in fairness i i didn't direct island queen but like if you put war paint and island queen together like island queen was made for 800 pounds and that covered everything and war paint was made for thirty-five thousand pounds with also five years worth of improvements on technology i suppose five well. years worth of Yes, yes, of course, of course. And then Uzan Blackcurrant was probably 
Uzo was actually only five grand, so that was a, a real jump back, like financially. However, yeah, you're right. I just I knew an awful lot more about post production, and yeah, I just learned so much from every short I make. And as much as anything now, like every time I watch a film, I'm kind of ruining it for myself because I'm thinking, oh, you did that. Oh, that's interesting. Like, it's like when you start being like a full time stand up and then you can't ever watch stand up without being like, hmm, that's funny. Yeah. Mm, good topic. Glad they chose that. And you're like, oh, joyless little twat. What level of experience does a short film crew typically have? Are they people that will also, they're going, they're jumping from a feature to a TV show to a, to a, a short um and how is your way of organizing a, a crew on set changed over time oh yeah interesting question um like on island queen that was all students because ben malaby um is a professor at ravenbourne uh, film school and he's teaching film there um so all of his students came along so obviously they don't have tons of experience but at the same time they are really well trained that's something the bafta nomination really helped with is as soon as i you could say that you did get more experienced crew in fact, a lot of time what you have is crew members who are working crew members, but they might go on a, f- a big f- or a feature film and be like the third assistant director. So they're in charge of like the supporting actors and, you know, wrangling crowds. And then they'll come on a short and be the first assistant director. So sometimes inexperienced and like sometimes you do have a real mix of like we had the gaffer on um, Warpaint had lit a beautiful mind. Wow. And then you have like other people around you who that it's like their second job but everyone just works really hard and I think as long as people are kind everybody learns something for the first time at some point right so if someone doesn't know something there is no benefit to you being a dick about it and I definitely when I first was on set I would always feel like I had to make the crew laugh I always felt like it had to be fun it had to be funny and now I realize I, I, I just don't feel the need anymore and maybe that's just me getting older and I think, and maybe it's me not needing to people please and not needing to justify myself. I can't see you as the James Cameron temper tantrum type. Oh still. God, <laughs> oh God, no, 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 no. I never snap, I'm not a snappy person. And I I never get short. I think I just chat less. And actually, I don't think anybody benefits from a chatty director. And And also, I now don't feel like I'm being rude to the actors if I'm glued to the monitor. I used to feel that I should go by the camera so I could talk to the actors quite quickly and easily in between takes and I would just watch the little monitor on the camera. And now I'm like, no, do you know what? What we're all trying to get is the best possible outcome. So I'm going to take my mobile monitor and I'm going to sit in the corner and I'm like six feet away from the actors, but they know I'm here and we've been talking loads in the run up to it and they don't need me. The feature I'm I'm hoping to shoot early next year, I actually have a five-year-old actor in it. So I may have to rethink that a bit and go back to the camera for him. I watched some of your work uh, via your Vimeo channel. And Vimeo is a very interesting site. Uh, I go there for, there's some people who maybe can't get their stuff on YouTube that use Vimeo. There's obviously some great work within itself there. There's a there's a film critic uh, called David Ehrlich, who every year does a oh, top yeah. 25 videos. And that's yeah, always yeah, on yeah. Vimeo. So I always, I, I'm constantly refreshing Vimeo around that time of the year. I'll be very interested to see what he thinks of the... Uh, 2020s outputs um one of the things your vimeo channel includes is your director show reel what purpose does that do for you is that essentially the cv and who are you sending that to and what are you trying to show in those show reels oh good point um to be honest that director show reel i never use it my producer april kelly 
um, bless her, she just cut it together for me because we were applying for something for a feature film, a comedy horror that I've written. And they were just like, we don't want to watch a load of short films. Can you just send us like a showreel? So she cut me together a showreel. But to be honest, I think uh, a director's showreel is great if you're applying, for, if you're pitching for commercials because you're like, here are the shots I use, here are the... But because what I do is is it's fiction, it's 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 editorial, you know, it's... it's um, I, I would rather people watch a whole short film and then I'm like, that's the sort of thing I do. Or read my scripts and, and because I am a writer-director, although although I'm happy to just write on some things and to a lesser extent just direct on some things, um, yeah, I, I don't think that showreel helps me much, but if I was going for maybe more TV directing gigs or commercials, that would be handy. Do you look at actors' showreels? Because I've seen those on on uh, YouTube uh, quite a lot. Some people I know around Birmingham, I think they literally film things for showreels. They don't even film short films. They've got like yeah, sets, yeah, 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 scripts. Do you use them? Do you find them useful? And if so, what are you looking out for when you look at those showreels? No, I don't. I don't watch actors' showreels. So, what's the auditioning and casting process for you then? Well, well, so right now we have a script out with with an actor to play the lead in in this horror. And I mean, she's an actor that like you would just know her name. So I've seen her films over the years. And so I know what she does. And I think I've not seen what I'm looking for, but I know she can do it. But I think that would be interesting to her because it would be something slightly different. Um, So it is a combination of actors whose films I've seen in the cinema. So I'm like, I'm on board, I like what you do. Or sometimes it's people I've known through, because I've been going such a long time now, I've been I've been in the business 12 years now. Um, yeah, there's actors like um, Gabby Best in Warpaint. Like, I had just seen her, like, on the circuit, doing stand-up, doing sketch stuff, so I just always knew she had this perfect energy that I wanted. Um, and the same with Weirdos, my Shakespearean um, film. I always knew I wanted um, Ruth Bratt in it. Because I'd always seen her do improv and, and um, I think as well when you're on a set, even if it's just a short, it can be so tense and like tempers can flare so quickly because people are cold. They're usually rained on. Um, so people that you actually know and have known for a few years does make everything a bit easier. Not to sound nepotistic because also as well, it's hardly like I'm handing out career making million dollar film roles yet. Um, so but that's what I do. I suppose now, post-Covid, I will just have to watch more self-tapes. Yeah, the auditioning process generally is people I know of or I already, or I already know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, whenever I go to Edinburgh, every every year I've been going to Edinburgh, one of the things I always promise myself is I'm going to go see more plays. It's like I'm going to eat healthily, I'm going to jog, yeah, and I'm yeah, going to go yeah. see more plays. One of the big conclusions I get from going to Edinburgh is there are far more good actors than there are not necessarily good roles, but good opportunities to make a living yeah. as, a, as an actor. That seems to yeah, be the experience yeah, yeah. I've had. Do you plan to act in any of your own films going forward? Because you haven't acted in the last few that you've directed. Is it, yeah. like you say, because you're behind the video vi- village? I've always wondered if the actor-director sometimes has to pass off a certain number of responsibilities on the set when they're acting. You know, like Yeah, I wonder that as well. I went to a talk that Taika Waititi gave um, and I asked him when he was acting and directing does he watch playback? And he was like, no, no. He said, he said he leaves it to the DP, which, you know, is, is kind of outside of a DP's usual remit Mm. to like judge the performance of an actor as well. But he said he just, it's someone he knows and has worked with a long time. So he just trusts him. Whereas I'm sure, 
I'm sure there are actor directors who do just watch themselves back on playback, but I'm, it must slow you down so much. So no, basically, I I don't have any plans to act in anything I'm making anymore because I just want to make the best films possible and I don't think, as an actor, I'm bringing anything particularly that I that I can't think, like, off the top of my head of five women who wouldn't do it just as well and better. I think sometimes best not to take on every single role because... Because sometimes you have to ask yourself, why am I taking on all these roles? Am I the absolute best person to do every role? Am I credit hogging? Or am I being controlling and thinking that nobody else could do this better? Because the more experienced I get, the more confident I get, the more I'm absolutely comfortable with with appreciating how talented all the people around me are. So I have no angst about a script of mine being directed by someone else because they're going to make it different to how I would make it. And that and I know it's going to be fantastic, so I'm, you know, happy. So, again, uh, going through the four or the five shorts of yours that I've seen, the first two that you wrote or, and or directed, Island Queen and Three Women Wait for Death, felt more like self-contained narratives with a beginning, middle and end. That's not to say War Paint and Ozu don't tell a full story, but those, to me, felt like they had more of a to-be-continued or there's more to this world, that they almost yeah. felt more like... The, one of the one of the worst films that we've covered for Bob was a film called Cashback, and that was taken from a short film that they literally were able to plug into the middle of the film itself, and then film mm. extra stuff on either for the beginning and the, and the end. Is that where you're looking at some of your short films now more that they're almost like extended trailers? Is there essentially a feature for War Painter, feature for Ozu and Black Currents, or have I misread that? No, 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 no. I mean, when we when we made Island Queen, we just made it to make a short, and then very quickly it became clear to me that you should make a short that you can adapt into a feature, even. But but you should make it just because you love the short as well. And so, Three Women Wait for Death could be a feature, but it feels very self contained to me. I think that's fine. Um, as in, like it's fine to keep it as a short. It it tells the story. Um, the 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 third one is called Weirdos, and that is the Shakespearean one. That that's is, the one um, I haven't had the chance to see, unfortunately. No, no, sorry. Um, that one is a retelling of Macbeth from the perspective of the three witches. And actually, funny enough, out of all of them, that's the one I think would be really fun to make as a feature. Mm. Um, but the but it's just not come up. It's it's fairly weird weird and niche, I guess. But yeah, War Paint could definitely be a feature, or in fact, a TV series. I think the writer is. It was in with Sky for a little while, I think, talking about a TV version. I just think, like, those are such interesting characters, and I think Yasmin would have developed it in, like, a very different direction as well. So that the short would have just been a jumping-off point. And Uzo and Blackcurrant is simply because there's a technical thing in it which you identified on the phone. Uh, I have that in a horror film, a feature... And I wanted to test it out. Uh So I wrote two new characters and I wrote a whole new short just to test. And also that would have been the first straight horror I'd directed. You could almost make that, therefore, almost like the scene at the start of Scream that establishes the concept, gives you two characters and they're killed off and then you go into the main start of the film, maybe. I don't know. I just wanted to see if it could be scary because it actually only crops up a couple of times in the feature film. But I just didn't know... If a square, this is hard because your your listeners haven't seen it, but um, if a square could be scary or if it would be pathetic and it would make people laugh and 
it scared people. So I was like, great, that, I'm glad we tested it. It's literally the uncanny, isn't it? It's the familiar yeah. put into a, a different context. And is that also why uh, Ozu and Black Current is by far the shortest of the of the four? Yeah. I think it's only like six yeah. minutes whilst the other ones are about 15. Yeah. Well, I also got a little... I don't know, all my films were quite chunky 15-minuters where you basically had crammed like three acts into 15 minutes. And I wanted to... Um, I just wanted to make something short and and lighter and like just, yeah, just just not such an immersive um, feeling short, but like something that was really out to entertain and scare. Uh, it just felt like a slightly different uh, uh, tone to what I'd done before. So this is really the last of my questions related to the short films aspect, mm. and it's pretty all encompassing, I suppose. So say. In a couple of years' time, I've written my short film script and I've got my financing and I can get ready and start going into pre-production. What single bit of advice would you give to a first-time short film director that you wish you'd known when you started? Really read and reread your script. Does everything in there need to be in there? Because when you're shooting, you will really resent hours that you spend on, a, on a, an irrelevant little scene that you could have spent throwing it all at like your big hero scenes, which really are doing some heavy lifting dramatically or in terms of horror or or comedy. And if you can, give it to a more experienced filmmaker to read. And hopefully then they won't, they'll be able to see it as your film. So they won't be like, I would do it like this and this and this, but take their advice. Um, Don't get too dogmatic about your script. Um, on the set of Warpaint, there was a whole scene where I said to Yasmin, I want to keep filming this scene, but it means I don't have time to shoot that other scene. I think we can just cut the whole thing. And she looked at me like, yeah, I, I don't care. It's it's yours now. You're directing, which I thought was so classy and exactly what you should do if you're the writer actor. That once you step on set, you're the actor and you put yourself completely in the director's hands. And we never once missed that scene. Although on paper, it felt crucial. Once we were on set, we realised everything else was doing the job of that scene already and we didn't need it. So yeah, definitely interrogate your script. So that ended with an all-encompassing question on the short film front. Now when we go more towards the film industry itself, um, I'm going to start with the all-encompassing question. If I was to ask you to describe what you believe the UK film industry to be, either in your experiences or what you've heard, if you had to try and describe its current state, mm. what would you say is the UK film industry? I couldn't. I really couldn't because I I know the path I have picked through it, but I just don't know. And then when you throw COVID in as well, mm. God knows what, what is actually happening with it now. And you know, I find myself constantly surprised as well by things that get funded and made. And I don't mean that in a shady way. I just literally mean sometimes certain film bodies seem very conservative with a little C and like they'll only put money behind like established directors with a yes. established IP or something. And then you'll just see them throw quite a lot of money at a really daring, bold idea, which will never make its money back. And and yet, I just don't know. That was going to be a follow-up question. I might as well bring it in now then, essentially. Because mm. uh, I remember hearing, I think it was in a Mark Kermode special, and he interviewed Matthew Vaughan, one of the most successful mm. British filmmakers, and also an independent filmmaker, weirdly. like Things like Kick-Ass, he does generate th- through his own finances. And he seems to have implied in the past that a lot of the people who hold the purse strings in the UK maybe feel more comfortable in the 
the art house end of things rather than necessarily thinking of the commercial interests. Like, yeah. I think, do you think there's any truth in that? Do you think that perhaps companies like before the UK Film Council, now the BFI, feel more f- comfortable funding Mike Lee, Joanna Hogg esque realistic dramas than taking a crack at like a genre horror film? Like, we produce great art house films, usually at least one every year, like. Joanna Hogg's last one was fantastic. But the likes of mm. a Shaun of the Dead or an Attack the Block seem to be much rarer coming from the UK, at least in my experience as a as a, as a film goer. Uh, do, you, yeah. do you agree with that assessment or in, in any way? In my experience as a filmmaker, yeah. Yeah, that's what I think it is as well. I think I write quite commercial films. Like, I don't write blockbusters, but I write films that I want... I, that are entertaining they're not they're not obscure they're not deliberately elusive they're um and there's always some comedy in them there's always some like humor because because life always has humor in it and i think as soon as there's anything comedic in a script especially if there's any sort of funding body that that decides things by committee like i mean you know from stand up like you never make a whole room laugh. No. So if there's a committee looking at your script, the moment they say, one person says, I don't find it funny, your film isn't getting funded. So I've never had any success getting my features funded through a public funding body route uh, so far. And funnily enough, I, I now seem, I think, I think I have a couple of features now that are going to be funded just commercially. Mm. And I think maybe that's just my route. I think that's what I write. I write genre. I write comedies. I write comedy dramas. I write horrors. And they're all thoughtful. They've all got, like, issues at the heart of them. But I think if... if I think if you're predisposed to see genre as a bit trashy, then I can't persuade you that my films are artistically worthwhile. Mm. Even... But because that's so subjective as well, isn't it? And like, and and you know, I don't think for a second I'm entitled to millions and millions of pounds of public money. I don't like what a privilege. I submit sometimes, and I would like to get that money. But when I don't, I there's no bitterness on my part. But I just am now starting to feel like that's not my route. Yeah, I don't make art house. Well, I was wondering about that, actually, because, um, again, this was a follow-up question, but I'll bring it up now. Because it does seem that of the genres that are still viable in the in the live exhibition route going forward, it does seem to be, outside of superhero movies and blockbuster films in general, horror does seem like the genre that can still draw in an audience relative to yeah. its budget to be successful. Yeah. And it's also perhaps the best showcase of a director as a visual storyteller. So many of the greats like Peter Jackson, Sam Raimi, to an extent Edgar Wright, in some form or another, came from, from horror. Um mm-hmm. But it also is the one that, that it's a communal experience. People like to go to the cinema and being some people do. I'm not <laughs> that way myself. Um, but now uh, to go to the art house side, because now you're getting these things that critics like to call elevated horror because it seems like they're ashamed to say one of the best films of the year yeah. is a horror film. You know, I'm thinking of elevated like, horror is so rude. It's like it's a horror film, but it's not shit, guys. Oh well. But you know, it's things like Midsummer, um, Hereditary, The Babadook, Saint Maud. Yes, well, I was about to say some more from yeah. the UK. I haven't seen that yet. I do. Yeah, it's amazing. But I was thinking before then. I don't. I guess it kind of is almost on the in between the the Alice Lowe revenge film as well. Um, yeah. Is that was that a? I mean, I do wonder if if you're a filmmaker that wants to get a film made, 
horror might be the one to go because it seems like the the two best producers as far as getting successes at the moment are either uh, Kevin Feige or Jason Blum and also maybe the people behind A24 mm. you know and so do you think horror mm. is is a path that you can go down because it will help you as a director or is it just where your preferences lie from growing up being getting into films um, no, I mean, I'm a horror fan. I always have been. My oldest friend, Caroline, um, we've been friends since we were seven. We have always watched horror together. And like during lockdown, we've been watching horror simultaneously on our laptops and talking through it. And like, um, I will happily be completely entertained by a three star horror film where I will not be captivated by three star drama. Yeah. And I think probably a lot of people can say that. Um, I do think there is an element as well of like this thing that like horror um as you say it can it can overperform relative to its budget you don't always need stars in fact sometimes it's best you don't have a star because then you know they're going to survive um i think there is a bit of a vogue for people making very unsettling chilling psychological explorations that then when they're finished are called horror mm. like the witch yeah um perhaps even saint maud as well because i'm not sure like saint maud scared me but it was just so emotionally intense mm. i don't know if I, I would be i would be so sad if someone went to go see it um assuming a horror and then was like that wasn't scary enough when i think what it is is a, is a chiller yeah well i think a lot of the successes for some of those films especially the a24 films is they're fantastic at making trailers that mm. maybe misrepresent the film to get people in and sometimes you end up seeing a great film, but not everyone that saw Hereditary or not everyone that saw The Babadook may have enjoyed it for what it actually was compared to what it was mm. sold to them. But I guess the idea is we've got your money. <laughs> already, you know. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And some people will get a pleasant surprise and see something like a Hereditary or, or a Babadook that they may not have before because of how it's marketed and how horror is still one of the few things that can draw an audience in, you know? Mm. It's just a yeah, theory yeah, on my yeah. end. So you mentioned before the pitching element. What is the secret to a good pitch, and how have you improved as a a pitcher yourself? Well, God, I've done a lot of pitching via Zoom uh, in lockdown, and I've actually I've won all but one job pitching during lockdown. So I think it's not too bad. Some people when they're pitching to direct, like I was hearing only on Friday actually about a director who uh, their film came out a little while ago, but when they were pitching to direct they brought in like a massive chest full of items and they were bringing out textures and things and fabrics and things that smelt and they were just trying to evoke this like world that they saw so clearly in their head and you know which is which is a baller move because I remember with Jigsaw our sketch group that when we do gigs where we died on our ass we'd then have to gather up all our props and leave <laughs> and there's nothing like leaving a gig where you've done badly with like a massive box of props in your arms and your audience thinking oh god did you, did you have to bring that on the tube or or the car? Oh, it's embarrassing. I think it is really just proving that, like, you, you know exactly what you're doing with this film. That, like, you see the world, you can live in the world, it's real to you. If you wrote it, I mean, all the better, really, because then, like, of course it's your world because you created it from scratch. And I think not overcomplicating it. I think maybe three big ideas because there's no point taking them through the blow-by-blow blow of how you would shoot every single scene, because, you know, you're just giving people more, more excuses as well to be like, oh, hang on, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I completely agree with you about the location for the, the second act climax, and you're like, okay, fine. Um, so, yeah, I think it's keep it simple, but be really clear in what you, in what you think and want and know, 
no self-doubt. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the place for self-doubt. Because obviously being good at pictures doesn't mean you're then going to be good at making the film. Just like someone who's good at an interview one might not necessarily end up being good for their job. I mean, you know, Max yeah. Landis was clearly very good at pitching films, but I've yet to see a Max Landis film in any way, shape or form that I like. And I think that about Quibi. Um, but in some of my research uh, of you listening to some podcasts you were on and uh, some interviews you gave... You were quite frequently referencing a few years back a, a screenplay called Annie Has Body Issues. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. What journey has that screenplay gone on and has it reached its final destination yet? No, it's not yet. So it was the first feature I wrote and it was um, Annie's, called, Annie's Got Body Issues, it's called. And it, it um, Zoe Ball, in fact, referenced it on her radio show. She's a very nice woman and she liked the sound of it. Um, it... Uh, is about a woman who wakes up the night after a house party to find a dead body on her sofa, but it's the body of a woman she hates who is now going out with her husband, and so with this woman dead, her whole life improves. And so our protagonist has very mixed feelings about this event and does not go to the police, um, just sort of reaps the consequences. Um, And I wrote it in 2013. In 2014, an LA producer came on board to produce it, managed to get about... I think he managed to get £300,000 of money raised off the back of it, but it turned out he was a con man yeah. and he was trying to steal the um, the rights to it and I had to get lawyers on him and it was only selling my second book, that second and third book, that dug me out of that near bankrupt situation. And then another con artist came on board, along with Duncan from Blue, who is a lovely man and very handsome in the flesh. And so me, Duncan, him and Ben got taken on a bit of another wild ride. I think that guy did time in a Spanish prison. And at that point, I think we all just put the film down and walked away. But then I sort of revived it a couple of years ago um, because BBC Films were interested in it. And then that sort of went away and now there might be another company interested in it. And my friend Alicia MacDonald, who is an excellent director, and um, Helen Grierson, who uh, an amazing producer. She's producing with Lucky Chap, Margot Robbie's company, but over here. Um, the three of us are now determined to get it made with Alicia directing. Um, did you write that to act in it yourself? I did. I wrote it to act in it, but um, so many years have passed. And I, I, you know, and the character has changed so much. And um, yeah, no. No urge. I'm just happy to write it and see it get made, and I think it. I think it will. I feel now like it's got momentum behind it again. But poor, poor Annie. Like that screenplay has been on a hell of a journey. Quite a lot of police involvement for one script. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, I almost have to chuckle about. I remember they did a quite a good Family Guy gag about it once. Was um, and that doesn't always happen. Um, was when you see, especially an independent film how many production company logos you see at the oh start my god of yeah right something presents introduced a yeah. blah blah co-production i mean and you now know... you get thanks to as well yeah. and you just get like a hundred names you're like fucking you had to kickstart a bit yeah. of it as well like oh man do you, do you know how that works is it always a case of like are these companies to sort of partner with each other or is as one company said, we've got £100,000, we'll hold this for you for five months. If you can get the rest financed, then you've got our 100000 I mean, it seems so elaborate yeah. in itself. Is, has that been something you've experienced, that you've had a film that's like 60% of the way, but then you couldn't get the other 40%, and then the 60% went, and then suddenly the 40% comes yeah. along? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, exactly that, exactly that. It's so funny, I was writing a TV show a couple of years ago, and the TV producer was like... The thing is, she said, oh, for to get the money, we might need to, like, ooh, co-pro with another company. And I was like, 
Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> because in film, like, especially independent film, like, yeah, you can have, like, 11 companies on board. And, like, that is where something like the BFI is amazing because the BFI will put their money in first mm. and take it out last at the end. There are a lot of companies who are like, if you can get 70% of your money, we will throw in the final 30. So with film financing, getting the ball rolling is so hard. But once that ball is rolling, a lot of people then join your ball I'm imagining like a ball of dung, like a yeah. dung beetle rolling it. Um, but yeah, it's getting up and going at the start. And like, and you can't fake it either. I definitely know people who are like, oh, I've put 20 grand of my own money into it. And it's like, it's just not enough. And it's not, it doesn't look legit as well. Like you need to be able to go, this film company has put in X amount of money. They believe in it. But you can get like sales agents on and all the rest of it and people who will then take it once it's finished at the other end. and Or sometimes nobody has quite enough faith in you. So they will want, when you've made it, then they might get on board and retrospectively give you some money. And But you have to make it first because it's quite execution dependent. And also often you'll hear when they do like parodies of these things, they'll say, so-and-so is attached to star in it. How does that... Have you tried yeah. to like take a script to an actor first to sort of register an interest and then they can say, you can use my name for this? And then how do you know that that actor will be available for when you can do it? You know, because sometimes... No, you do it all the time. And to be honest, a lot of the time, it doesn't matter if that actor is available, not available nearer the time, because when you get nearer the time, if that actor can't do it... And I think a lot of the time, actors kindly lend their name to things and let themselves be attached knowing full well there's flip all chance they will be able to do it but at that point the money's attached and once the money's attached you can get a higher caliber actor to replace them than you could have got if you hadn't got that actor attached in the first place it's like an endorsement of quality i suppose that's why harvey keitel was so keen to help first-time filmmakers because he knows that his name can get a certain yeah. amount of a budget made and increasingly actually i was thinking this like uh, it's something i wanted to explore in the next podcast i'm doing that you'll be you've been very kind to to agree to be on uh how the movie star has changed over time because uh, i was just mm. looking at it that there's there's people like leonardo dicaprio that are still movie stars but they're pretty much the last of a dying breed and i was wondering that if leo had come around now he wouldn't get to necessarily work with the scorseses and that but I wonder if his career would have ended up being like what a lot of Robert Pattinson's is now, where he's not mm. making the big budget Hollywood films, but his name can get that two million in to make The Lighthouse or that one million in to make uh, the one he did with the, two, the Safdie brothers that I love and Good, Good time. time. You know, yeah, maybe yeah, that's where the, the movie star quote unquote is going to go in the future more down that independent route I think I you do need to be more agile I think mm. now as an actor I do think you need to be doing a lot more of the work yourself like developing scripts with people and looking for those new filmmakers and and I think like I think actors are stepping into producing quicker yeah. and quicker yeah. but I think it's all to the good to empower yourself because if you're the actor and the producer then there is much less chance you're going to be made to get naked on screen and mm. and put in uncomfortable positions but yeah yeah you don't i'm not sure you have those leo dicaprio big big stars anymore no like chris evans as captain america guarantees a certain amount of box office chris evans as a lawyer maybe gets an apple plus tv series yeah 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 well i do think it's always quite damning about chris evans that when anyone says chris evans to me they go not the dj so it's like, well, Chris Evans will know he's made it when you have to specify not the one that was married to Billy Piper. One of the questions I have, what are some of your weirdest experiences of trying to get a film financed? But I guess you... 
I guess given that already. Do you have any other weirder ones or any any weird suggestions that someone said that that will make a film different or, or like a, someone who said they'll produce a film, but if you're put in like, you, have you ever heard Kevin Smith's story about the producer of the Batman films that was obsessed with getting a giant spider? Oh, Superman, he wants to get a giant spider into the film, and then eventually. He made um, uh, Wild Wild West, which had a giant spider in the film. <laughs> which we all know is a guarantee of a, of a smash hit. Um, no, I, for a little while, there was a little bit of a vogue to try and get influencers and YouTubers into, um, into indie films. And I really resisted that. And somebody was pushing this guy quite insistently, like saying he really should be in the film. And then he was discovered to be doing Nazi salutes in his videos and to have really Hitlery views. And I just thought, yeah, that, yeah. No, I'm not saying all influencers are Nazis. I just want to be absolutely clear about that. But um, I just want actors, really. I mean, comedians maybe, but like, but no, not, not people who like make their living on Instagram. Even though like, I know there is, there really is a lot to be said from people who like, achieve huge popularity simply through talking to their laptop in their bedroom like that is a real meritocracy you you have to be captivating and charismatic in some way to do that and I do respect that I do but I also don't think necessarily that you can just like jam people with x number of Instagram followers into an indie film to chase a quick buck well so many of them have made films that no one sees them like obviously Logan Paul's the most famous one of maybe the most famous influence in the world, and I found that he made a film that was basically a rip-off of Airplane, and no one's seen it. Really? Yeah, it's the first time I've even heard of it. That is the thing with film, though. With TV, there is not that much that got made and people never, ever saw it, and with film, I reckon there is, like, my God, what you actually see is the tip of the iceberg compared to what got made and never got seen or what got made but never got finished, what started filming and then collapsed. Like, it's crazy. It's got a last couple of industry questions for you here. Mm. Black Run and Ozu in particular, to me, had echoes of, of Black Mirror in its concept, which has obviously been a great path for original ideas. And so many original concepts are now turning up in, like, instead of being a 90-minute feature film, they're a 60-minute episode of an anthology series. And, and TV is yeah. increasingly becoming the place to go for original ideas, original stories, especially writers, where writers are the authors more than directors are you and you've made allusions to like the industry and it's maybe a different path that you have to follow like if you want to get into the tv industry do you essentially have to commit to that and try and be getting directors gigs on eastenders that then gets you the bbc drama and is it a completely separate ladder to climb or or can you shift across and and i guess the same for like commercials music videos are those avenues you're also looking at as a director no no, not really. It's just film for me. Um, like, if someone approaches me, then I'll consider it. But, like, I'm not pursuing commercials, TV or or music, especially not music videos. Um, that is just... There are people much better than that, than me. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I've written a little bit of TV, but, I mean, I think really I like an ending. I don't begin writing until I have an ending because it feels so important to me. So I write books and films. I write, like, discreet closed off things but yeah I mean just because I'm not pursuing it doesn't mean if it if it comes I don't consider it but I definitely feel like the film industry and and uh, publishing have been way more receptive to me and understood me and I never I never felt that off tv so mm. I think you just 
you know, you're like a plant, you turn your face towards sunlight and like films felt like sunlight. So I just turned my face that way. So the UK TV industry and film industry don't really feel like they mesh that often? Not to me. No, I know. I know there is sort of an argument that content is content, but it fe- they feel like two different worlds to me. So I opened this with asking you to summarise the UK film industry and quite sensibly you said you couldn't. <laughs> I said no, Logan, I cannot. But with your experiences of the UK industry... What would you like to see improve within it? I suppose we've already said with commercial viability maybe being respected a bit more. Are there any other yeah. avenues you would like to see improved? And I don't know. I, I don't like to ask female creatives about being a female in the creative industries, but if that's something you want to mention here, more opportunities that could be made for female directors and writers, perhaps. I don't know. This, this will be your chance um... to talk about it if you want to. If you don't, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for a while, it definitely felt like there were a load of, like, breakfasts and schemes and things that didn't actually actively help female filmmakers. We would just go to a thing, mingle around, see people you see all the time, pose for a photograph, and then that photograph would be used to show how that organisation was really backing women. But it's like, well, none of us are working from that. And, like, it's not like I expected to turn up and be given a budget for a film, but, like... I think a lot of money was spent on lip service, which I think after a while we just stopped turning up to these things. I don't know. I See, like, obviously there is, like, endemic sexism pretty much everywhere. Um, and also, like, racism and all the rest. But all I can speak to it really is is um, sexism. As um, I'm mixed race but very white-looking woman, so it's really just sexism I experience. But after stand-up, like, after seven years of stand-up, that was the most overt, like, howling, loud, throwing things, sexism from the audience really more than more mm. than uh, comics although you know it's elsewhere so film still feels more respectful to me and in fact the horror i'm working on right now i'm working on it with three men and i, I don't we've been working on it since april and i don't think at any point anybody has said as a female filmmaker or even said as a debut filmmaker it's just sort of assumed i'm the best person for the job and I appreciate that more than I could possibly say. And I would never say it to them because we don't have a mushy relationship. But I... But yeah, definitely, like, there there are some people who kind of make out like they're doing you a massive favour by having faith in you. And you think, well, have faith in me or don't, but don't force yourself to pretend you have faith in me because you need to up your quota of women. And so I do find now that this year I'm only working with great people who just think that my eye and my ideas and my writing are the best for the job. It doesn't feel... I don't feel any of the tokenism that perhaps I I had rubbed up against a bit before. And that's not to whinge. I mean, look, tokenism is a lot better than being completely ignored. But fundamentally, I just want to make my films. And that does come down to money. There's no escaping that. But yeah, I feel like I'm now on a really good path. I feel like I can see my six features, like they're all like lining up one by one, like in an aeroplane, ready to jump out with their parachutes on. And that is a lovely feeling after five years of really hard work. Does this feel different, the the state that these six films are in? Does this feel like they are going to... You feel more confident that at least the majority of them will take off and, and land at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something huge has shifted. And maybe it's in me. I've definitely been like, I definitely have like readdressed my mindset, not to be too woo about it, but like I definitely have stopped coming up with reasons why things won't happen. Like I just won't even consider them because my whole life I knew I would do what I wanted in my career. And I'm not from money. I'm not from influence. Like my mom's a waitress and my dad's a barman. So there's really no reason I should believe that I'm going to get what I want 
professionally, but I believe I will and then I do. Um, and, and again, there's privilege in that and I'm well aware. So even if it's not money privilege behind me, like I'm, you know, able-bodied and I'm white and I'm, you know, all these things, I'm really aware of that. But yeah, these six films, I see them all now lining up and it just feels like a con man couldn't take advantage of me this time round. I feel like it's all really legitimate people who I completely respect who are working on these films now. And that's a great feeling. Like, it makes me feel like, even though none of them are made yet, it makes me feel like I'm at the centre of, like, a spider's web of stuff I've spent five years working so hard on and now they're ready to go out into the world. And that's, like, an amazing feeling. It's all I've ever written as women. Because, I like, I went to an all-girls school. I am a woman. You know, write what you know, really. And I write novels for teenage girls, about teenage girls. So, like, I feel like the, the female condition is something I, I cover off um, quite a lot. Uh, I'm starting to write men more just mm. because I should. As in, I should stretch myself, should stretch my wings. But um, yeah, funnily enough, the horror that right now is out with actors to consider the lead, um, the the lead role is for a 40-year-old woman. And it, actually, the women we've been going to, they've all been interested, but they're all busy. They're all working yeah. already, which I think is, is maybe a good sign that what was said in that talk all those years ago isn't as true anymore. I guess the worry always is, it was like when there was a, I remember seeing Jordan Peele doing a Q&A with some young, with young film students and one young uh, black student asked, we've kind of been here before in the 90s with Boys in the Hood and the early Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X and and, uh, Menace to Society and then it just kind of dropped off. How can we make sure that the opportunities that are appearing post Get Out are still going to be there 10 years after Get Out, or are we going to suddenly yeah. need another Get Out to turn up in 20 years' time for there to be a two- or three-year window that they can get into and, and keep it going? It's always... you just got to keep it up, I guess, is the question. Well, the... it does feel more precarious as well. I think it definitely feels like it's... It, people are quicker to go, well, it turns out she was shit. Like, mm. when a woman makes one amazing film and then the second one is considered yeah. not as good, and they were like, well, we were wrong. Um, whereas I think they have faith in white men forever. Yeah, I'll be honest, I didn't like A Wrinkle in Time, but I also didn't like a lot of films that were not directed by a black woman, and I hope that Ava DuVernay continues to get to make films, even if one of them didn't necessarily work as well, in my opinion at least, uh, as other people, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think someone said, like, that is true equality, where women and women of colour and, and men of colour get to make mediocre films sometimes. Yeah. Not saying that A Wrinkle in Time is, I haven't actually seen no. it yet, but um, yeah. that you can make mediocre things and not and that's not the end of your career. There's some leeway. It felt like far too many people had far too much emotional investment on whether or not the, the recent Ghostbusters film was good or not, and it became impossible to... I mean, yeah. objectivity is impossible anyway, but it was kind of like... Because I'll be honest, again, I mean, I love Melissa, I think Bridesmaids a masterpiece, I think Ghostbusters was a bit of a mess and I point that mostly to the director Paul Feig than I do anything else um, but but no one says that no one's going to say Paul Feig can't make another film you know no of course they don't no god um, I mean my favourite film is Jurassic Park and I might watch that I'd say once a week in lockdown I might watch it more because it's my comfort and still when I went to go see the new ones I had a great time and mm. I'm like it's not no it's not as good as the first one I still mm. have the first one yeah. No one took it off me. Like yeah. every time there's a new version of that thing you love, you still have that thing you love. Yeah. So 
fuck up about it. Yeah, again, that'll be something really interesting to discuss on the on the future podcast that uh, I'll be doing. That's kind of the theme of it, really. Does it matter? Like looking back at things. So on to sort of more your personal reflections, and uh, well, it's sort of industry related. The last one of these questions. We're still in an unsure place as far as what the state of cinema will be, even in a year's time. Yeah. There is a potential, uh, and I'm sure you don't want to think about this, but within a few years, a film, um, unless it's got the Marvel logo on it or something, will most likely debut on a Netflix or a or an uh, prime video. I remember Amazon, I think it was either Sundance or Cannes, the films that were in competition... Amazon said we're immediately bidding a hundred thousand dollars on all of these films. So if none of them got huh. bid on, they basically right. were, you're going to take that. So they they were guaranteed something, but not. It's horrible to think about. But if you make films for the rest of your life, but none of them end up showing up, like I can't go to the Odeon on Birmingham New Street and see them. But I, if I've got Netflix and an Amazon Prime account, I can see them at home in a very nice set up eventually as as time goes on i'm able to build a decent yeah. home cinema it's not the same communal experience is no it? no especially with a horror film if that's sort of the, the genre you want to go down you want to yeah, yeah, you want to yeah, see yeah. that you want to see those uh trailers for paranormal activity where they filmed a, a, an audience in with the with the dark cameras and you seeing them all react together you know yeah is yeah, that yeah. is that something you don't like to dwell on really or is it something you you wonder about would you would you be disappointed if a film of yours doesn't get a release in two, three hundred Odeon screens or something like that. The thing is, though, like uh, a film like maker like me, like I never really had the luxury of assuming it would. When I was writing my first films and people were like costing them up and saying what budget you should look at, it was sort of always assumed, even like five years ago, um, a film festival run. So then it would get seen in cinemas with a load of film fans. So that's fantastic. Um, a film festival run and then maybe some limited release in cinemas, but there was never an assumption that anything I was writing would get like an international cinematic release and then a streamer. So nothing's really changed for me. Like, obviously, the dream would be to have it in cinemas, but I was never really allowed to have that dream in the first place. So I don't feel anything's been taken off me. Well, I hear about, like, you won't believe how many films are made in Britain that literally no one gets to see because it doesn't even get, like, a... It can't even get a DVD company to produce it and put it in an HMV or anything, you know? And obviously, God, I'm hoping that never happens to any of my films. Mm. But, yeah, I, I think it's been a very long time since, like, emerging filmmakers got to assume that they would get cinematic releases so these are the last few questions thank you so much for, for hanging on i hope it hasn't been too no not at all this is actually about quality of films and bad films and good films which is what the podcast is about we we, we look at films that have a bad reputation we see if that's earned or not pretty much every time it has been <laughs> some of them you feel okay making fun of more than others how much control do you think ultimately a writer-director has over the quality of a film? Obviously there are some people that have great strike rates, but even Steven Spielberg has has a few duffs. He, you know, he yeah. has King of the Crystal Skull. Martin Scorsese has a few that didn't work. Like, Christopher Nolan is obviously quite a divisive figure right now. So how much control do you have? Like, like I always hear that like the assembly cut is the worst nightmare for a director. <laughs> it's and, horrible. And... How much control do you think you ultimately have in the have had in the quality of your short films? I mean, full control over the quality of the short films. Like that's the joy of short films. You don't ever have like an exec breathing down your that's neck. That's true. Yes. Um, yes. So 
that that and that is why I think even like some big filmmakers like Lynn Ramsey will like pop off and do a short every now and again in between big features. But yeah, I genuinely do believe like I think always there's always the risk of like over involved execs and the studio behind you. I can't see that being something that happens to me for a little while at least. Um, I think my films are still small enough that I'm not going to get like people marching onto my set and like trying to strong strong arm me off it. But I I do think though sometimes like as I said, there's just an alchemy on set when you're filming, and you just have to you have to keep your head, but not let yourself think. Oh, what if this is a bad film? What if we're making a bad film? Like you just there there is kind of some magic that that happens on set, and like and and often there's things that you thought were impossible, but once your crew turn up and your actors are there and everybody is pulling in the same direction, that lonely development period and pre production period feels like a, a bad memory, and I think it was Chris McQuarrie who said um, writing is like pushing a boulder up a hill and directing is running down the hill with it behind you and it's like (laughs) that's exactly what it's like just making 101 decisions all day on set and hoping you're making the right ones or not too many bad ones but yeah sometimes as well it's amazing which department might fuck over a film sometimes it's marketing sometimes it's calling a film a genre that it's not and so people are disappointed whereas if it had been called the right genre then it would have attracted the right audience or at least would have set expectations appropriately and sometimes it's as weird as like things like the title or the poster that just make you think you're going to get something different to what you get when you go in yeah Mm. so I just I just don't know I think all you can do is try your best and hopefully I'm sure everyone's got one bad film in them at least and 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 if when I you know do that and I I don't mean that none of my shorts I don't mean all my shorts like five stars all over the board but no one really cares with shorts I mean like if I make a feature that the world goes that stinks that I just have enough presence of mind to take it on the chin and go well I am still a good friend and a kind person so <laughs> fine well that's what I was going to ask as well um, how do you feel now when you see a bad movie particularly a bad British movie and how has that changed from when you weren't in any way a part of the film industry because I can almost feel like you have an emotional detachment at that point but then when you suddenly know how hard it is to make a film it either well I wonder does it become sympathy or does it become frustration because you're like because I remember like sometimes submitting a joke to a to a radio open submission thing and listening to the show without having any gone and thinking I'm not saying what I wrote is good but I know that joke's bad (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like is it a mix of emotions I don't know no it's always sympathy now really especially if it's like a lower budget film or a British film I kind of feel like there's my guys and like and if it's not good I just I don't know N- now I make films I realise how hard it is to make a good film how easy it is to make a film that doesn't quite work like that middle ground of mediocrity like it's very easy to fall into it and yeah I have sympathy like no one sets out to make a bad film sometimes people make films who should not be making films yeah that and that is often arrogance and overconfidence and I have very little sympathy with that that's my follow-up question which I'm basically now going to call my Knights of the Damned query because that was the one that really sparked discussions amongst us because I thought so it's, it's a really really low budget attempt at a fantasy film it's big selling point on the dvd cover was more dragons than the hobbit films quantity of dragons that is what you're looking for quantity quantity of two dragons then they are they better dragons that's not what i was saying i was saying quantity i think you'll find if you look at the dvd cover thank you and I, i genuinely don't think that a lot of the people involved in it can really claim to be part of the film industry it does and also 
there was some hubris behind it because they wrote it as a trilogy, filmed the first two films back to back and released them one after the other. And obviously, oh, they back to the future it. That I mean, that is a strategy. But only one and two. So their idea was then we'll get the financing and three will really go for it. Oh. But it, it is just, it's incompetence on, on a number of different levels. They seem like nice people when you look at the behind the scenes stuff. So then yeah. it becomes the question, is it more admirable to have made something rubbish go beyond your reach and maybe through hubris in some way, shape or form, you know, good natured people can have hubris too. Yeah. Or would it be better to kind of perceive your own weaknesses and not to have made it in the first place, you know? Like, surely they may have shown that script to someone and someone said, this isn't good enough. And maybe gone, okay. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, though. I guess the people that change the world are the people who go, I'm going to just do it anyway. Yeah. Like, for every bad idea that shouldn't have been made, one of them they might make and then people go, oh, that's actually... It's actually not bad. I mean, to be fair, with Island Queen, when I wrote that script, I sent it to like five people, like sort of TV producer people, because I didn't know any film producer people. And all five said, I don't like it. It's gross. This is horrible. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) We still shot it. And then when we shot it, like even my own agent, I have a different agent now, but even my own agent was like, I can't show this to anyone. It's a mess. And like several people said they did not like it. And then 10 months later, I'm in a big dress at the BAFTAs. So at that point, you think, yeah, I suppose a more sensible person would have just not made that film and not released that film. But I did both and it paid off. So the BAFTAs. <laughs> yeah, right. So and the food was great. And <laughs> I guess that's it. Every time you see a bad film, it's like it was never a bad film in their head. Mm. And they were just, I think it was Ira Glass that says, like, you start making art because you are a big fan of art. And then you make your first thing, whether it's a screenplay or a film or you paint or something. And the gulf between what you've made and what you enjoy that's already out there is so huge. It's crushing. And a lot of people cannot cope with that gulf. And a small percentage of people start inching painfully slowly towards the level of quality that they admire in other people. And those then I'm one of those people. Like, I just kept slowly inching and improving and improving. And, and I guess that's what everyone is trying to do. So are there any uh, books, any uh, podcasts uh, that you recommend on the production side of things? Um, I listen to loads of podcasts because I have tinnitus. So I have, like, a constantly very loud ringing in my ears. So I just have to listen to podcasts or I would go mad. Um, but I listen to... I'm sure these are very obvious to everyone, but there's a podcast called The Rewatchables where it's from the Ringer Network and they rewatch old films and then discuss them. And that is is fascinating. I like the A24 podcast. Obviously, Script Notes with um, John August and Craig Mason. Yes, yes. Um, obviously, Wittertainment with... Uh, Kermode and Mayo, obviously, like my uncles. Film Stories with Simon Brew is fantastic. That's like the behind the scenes stories of films, which again, a bit like this, I think just shows you what a tortuous and sometimes inexplicably fluky journey you get to making a film. And Team Deacons where Roger Deacons and his wife and son talk to people. They're fantastic. And then I listen to loads of horror podcasts. I listen to The Final Girls, horror movie podcast. Um, the Faculty of Horror is fascinating, where two academics go into the um, the the backstory and the, the themes of certain horror films. And I love them. I could keep going, but I won't bore you. Are there any... Uh, I, I saw that you follow on Twitter Film Crit Hulk. Are there any critics that you're a fan of or any YouTube video essayists or anyone like that? Oh, I used to love Every Frame of Painting. Mm. 
that was amazing. That was a part of my film school when I was teaching myself, but I think he's discontinued now, um, which is a real shame because I used to love that. In terms of film critics, I think for me it's Mark Kermode and Peter Bradshaw were just the ones I always read as I was growing up. So there, we got like a tiny, Island Queen got a tiny review of um, from Peter Bradshaw teeny weeny weeny um but we were happy with that thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us uh, about this um Pleasure. i hope that these questions have been interesting enough for you they have been utterly invigorating they've started my day well thank you very much uh, are there any social medias or anything people can follow you on that if this is the first time they've been introduced to you? yeah 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 um come to twitter i'm on there far more than i should be i'm at nat lertzema um if you just type at nat l-u-u it's always me because it's a dutch surname and it, i seem to be the only one with it um i am technically on instagram but i don't i always forget and i don't really go and check it but anyway you can follow me on there if you want and once in a blue moon i will post up something from a film festival um but yeah twitter is where i i tell the world what i'm up to all right well there's the usual challenge for bowob pod bowob pod is our twitter handle and uh facebook letterbox i'm on letterbox that's law come on are you on letterbox nuts i'm not actually i might get on it now we're heading into lockdown too fun yeah it's a good way of keeping a track record of everything and that's law come on that's l-o-r-c-a-n-m-u-l-l-a for assistant director N for nightlight supervisor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lovely. That's a very important position. The next series of Bob Pop will be start. Bob will be starting up very soon. We'll be starting off with uh, Richard Curtis's Love Actually, oh, which cool. is a film that has very different opinions. Actually, does that does spark a bit of a debate yeah. amongst us in that one? Um, and also the Bond mini series will be coming out after that's done. Uh, for free on the podcast channels but we'll hopefully have it on Bandcamp ahead of time if you fancy putting two quid in towards the show that's how you can listen to those a few months in advance but that's uh, nothing left to say at this point thank you very much for your time you're very welcome thank you for having me and that has been our episode of Bob I'll see you again very soon bye bye